You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Good morning. The focal passage is found in Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5. Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. This is God's word. You can now have a seat. Except Everybody except for me. I'm standing. Uh, my name is Michael. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. I'm one of the pastors and it is always a pleasure and privilege to see the top half of most of your faces. Um, I want to read that, that verse, or those two verses, just one more time, then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to talk about um, this God of all knowledge. Uh, Psalm 147, he determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. He is uh, omniscient. He is the God of all knowledge. And so that is just kind of an anchor text. There are many throughout Scripture that point us to these truths. And so um, would you pray with me that we might know this God of all knowledge? God, thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for your church being able to gather together and sing to you, about you, sit under your word, learn from you, learn of your greatness and, and the, the knowledge that you possess and how it's unlike any other being that's ever been or that ever will be. God, we need you today and we need to know that you know everything. Would you let that shape us by the way that you know us and, and by uh, all the things that we don't know? that we leave in your hands. We need you today. We thank you for Jesus. By your Holy Spirit, would you give us minds to to just get you in a way that we never have today. In Jesus' name, amen. Jen uh, Jen Wilkin helps set us up this morning from her book, None Like Him. Every elementary school has its share of colorful characters, and mine was no different. The most annoying girl in the first grade class had pigtails, knobby knees, and a serious self-control problem when it came to answering questions. She would lean forward, flailing her arm to catch the teacher's attention before anyone else. If our teacher called on a different student, Miss Pigtails would stretch it as far out in her seat as she could and wiggle her fingers frantically jiggling and whispering, um, 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 under her breath, hoping the first respondent would go down in flames. Caught on at last, she would blurt out her answer with the force of a tire having a blowout, her facial expression dissolving into triumph and relief, its effect only slightly diminished by the fact that she was missing all eight of her front teeth at once. She was a know-it-all, And she was a smarty pants. And she was me. That's not me, remember. That's Jen Wilkin, right? Uh, 
the classic know-it-all is someone that we've all probably seen. I'm guessing that some of us have have been. Uh, We've loved to be or we've loathed to see this idea. Um, Kids today would call her a tryhard, right? As if um, effort and ambition are like a, a negative thing, right? And, and certainly effort and ambition for, for knowledge, uh, that's a bad thing. She, she a tryhard, right? Um, this elementary know-it-all scene, it kind of rings out a, a lot of emotion, and it reveals a, a strong undercurrent of, of lots of things. Her identity in what she knows. Her peers' frustration at what they do not know, and, and how knowledge can and does divide even from our youth. See, we all have passions. We all have passions and ambitions for certain things, and those passions usually lead to the pursuit of knowledge. I don't know if that's true for me, but, but, but when I'm passionate, uh, I don't know if that's true for you, but for me, when I'm passionate about something, I want to learn about it. And so I, I, I figure out all the things, and I figure out all the specs, or I figure out the history of it, or I figure out all the things so that I can have a handle on what it is and know why my passion should go forth around that thing. For you, gosh, maybe it's rocks. Maybe you love rocks and minerals, right? Or, or maybe you love sports stats or, or biological terms or, or music and art or, or archaeology or machinery or, or literature. Whatever it is, our passions lead to the pursuit of knowledge so that we might be masters. We, we learn what we love. We learn about that which we love, that we might be know-it-alls, or at least know-it-mosts, right? Um, and sometimes those passions and those pursuits of knowledge, they lead to things like careers, and sometimes they lead to hobbies, and sometimes they lead to even the people that you hang out with, and, and the friends that you spend your life with, and, and all of that knowledge about all of those things can and does puff us up, especially when we're close to becoming a master. It can, it can puff us up giving a false identity. In the inverse, it can tear us down, causing us to feel insecure because of what we don't know. And all of those things added together, all of the knowledge from every person, from every academic department, from every community discussion, from every personal passion has been uploaded onto the internet. So that literally with my voice right here and now, I could ask this thing virtually anything. And it would tell me the answer. All of that can give the illusion that mankind has it figured out. We do not. We do not have it figured out. But what we can have figured out is is that all of our collective knowledge, the the knowledge in all of the books and all of the websites throughout all time, through through every civilization existing and, and existing in the past, is but a sliver of the knowledge of God. I'm talking a sliver. All of it added up together. He is omniscient. He is the God of infinite knowledge. And so we just want to explore that in, uh, in three ways, right? As we continue this series, he is, and this is number eight, 
That means we just have two more. Then we're jumping into 1 Thessalonians. And we'll walk through that book until uh, Advent time. And we'll, we'll do another series to, to end out the year. So, so the first thing that we're looking at is this. This is number one, God alone has nothing to learn. God alone has nothing to learn. In that sense, he alone is, is literally a know-it-all. And not in some smug way. Like, like we are when we're know-it-alls, or, or when we would call someone, stop being a know-it-all, stop being a try-hard. He literally knows it all. Humans are, uh, who are unwilling to learn, they're stubborn, they're prideful, they're me and they're you. But, but a God with nothing to learn is the one true God. I did some research this week on just kind of like the history of a master's degree. And for those of you who don't know, like kind of the way uh, post-high school stuff in the, in the States and kind of around the world works, like uh, typically a two-year degree is an associate's degree, a four-year degree is a, 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 a bachelor's degree, and then a uh, five- or six-year degree is a master's degree, depending on what field of study and then after that, you get your doctorate or your PhD, which is like roughly eight-ish. And, you know, that can be stretched out. Uh, rarely shrunk, but can be stretched out. And I know you know it all. You're like, I, I got my bachelor's in three, right? I know who you are, right? I can see you under the mask, right? And that's okay. So, so the, but the master's degree is a funny thing because it's like you, you, you are a master. We're, we're, we're giving you this, this acknowledgement, this certificate that says you are a master of something. And so kind of historically, a master of arts is an academic rank with, uh, with quite a pedigree going back to the great universities of medieval Europe. Originally, a magister or a master was the title conferred upon university graduates when they began to teach. So assuming one has some knowledge in a particular field, and one can teach that knowledge then in the particular field, then they call them a master. They're a master in their field. Now, there's lots of cultural connection for us in that, like the student has become the teacher or the student has become the master, or something about Padawans, I'm sure, for some of you. Over time, and because of the lack of standards across different uh, universities and, and even countries and, and, and periods of time and and, and the lack of standardization makes, like, in, in some instances, a master's is a big deal. In others, it's not so much a big deal. But to be clear, I actually have a, a MA in theology, a master's of arts in theology. And I just want you to know this. Um, a, a master of God, I am not. A master of the study of God, I, I am not. Like, not even close. For what that's worth, all right? So let's define some terms. The first one is this, knowledge. What is knowledge? Well, you can look on the screen. It's, it's facts, information, and skills acquired by a person through experience or education. Either the theoretical or practical understanding of a subject. Knowledge. It's, it's, it's the stuff that we know, right? One with knowledge knows the things to be known about a particular thing. Well, what does it mean to be omniscient? Well, it is the state of knowing everything. It is, it is to be all-knowing. Uh, A.W. Tozer helps us. He says, to say that God is omniscient 
is to say that he possesses perfect knowledge and therefore has no need to learn. But it is more. It is to say that God has never learned and cannot learn. And again, if you, if you kind of project what the human is that has nothing to learn and that seemingly has never learned anything in their life, you're like, no, I know. Some of you are like, I live with that guy, right? But, but when, we, when we project our human understanding with that, that, that's no good. But when we see that God literally has nothing that he might, there's no new information that he might come upon that he didn't know before. He knows himself perfectly. He knows all that is created perfectly. Why? Because he, he created, he sunburst. He knows every wayward son. So just as a programmer knows the code, so too does God know uh, that which he has sourced. And just as an architect knows her structure, so God knows the components of the entire universe. And just as a writer knows the characters in the plot and the story, so too does God know you and me and all of our obstacles and all of our successes and all of our emotions and all of our limits. God has Nothing to learn. Tozer goes on and he, and he says this. You ready? God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters. All mind and every mind. All spirit and all spirits. All being and every being. All creaturehood and all creatures. Every, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and in earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven and hell, because God knows all things perfectly. He knows no thing better than any other thing, but all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He is never surprised, never amazed. He never wonders about anything, nor except when drawing men out for their own good does he seek information or ask questions. I need a drink. Psalm 147, he determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. And in some translate, his understanding is, is infinite. It's never ending. He doesn't simply know constellations in the sky through study or, or memory or, or through the app that he just downloaded that he can point at the sky. He, he knows them, the ins and the outs, what makes them burn, how long they will last, what their chemical uh, and physical makeup is because he gave birth to the stars. This is our God. But look, God, he doesn't just know the, the periodic table of elements and he, and he doesn't just know how to design a cylinder and he doesn't just know the math behind a, a musical scale or how to bake a cake he knows you. He knows you better than you know you. He knows me. He knows the nature 
and the nurture that has culminated to you being right where you are in this moment. He knows why you respond emotionally to the things that you respond to or the things that you don't. And, and what the scripture teaches is that, that uh, in Jesus, he passed through the heavens. And so let us confess, because he is able to sympathize with our weakness. He has been tempted, and yet he is without sin. So let us, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. God knows everything about you, and he loves you anyway. And this is true for all who find their life in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. For all who say, my life is not mine, the old man is gone, but the new man is, is, is me. The new man is me because of my unity with the risen Jesus. He came not to learn, but to show you that he relates to your experiences, to your emotions, to your suffering. So God alone has absolutely nothing to learn, and yet he delights for us to draw. The second thing, limited knowledge is a humbling gift. That's what, that's what we bring to the table, limited knowledge. As Mark Twain has famously noted, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. I am that ignorant father, I mean to tell you. I don't know anything. <laughs> it's so tough. If you have kids that are existing, then you know that, that you don't know anything. But he goes on, but when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in just seven years. <laughs> Getting older means growing in knowledge. But it also means growing in our awareness of just how little we really know. Of just how much there is to know and just how little our sliver of that knowledge really is. Or, or as some of your own poets have said, and when you were young, they assume you know nothing. Right? The, the, the more you know, the less you know. The older you get, the more you know that you don't know. And... and Speaking from experience in my life, I can look back and I can think about the times where I thought that I knew everything, that I thought I was the master, that I thought my dad was an idiot, that I, that I thought everybody in the room around me didn't know as much as I knew. And then the older I get, just as, as Mark Twain puts in, in colorful language, that I just realize, oh my gosh, like I thought I knew everything because I didn't know all that there was to know. There's a lot to know, and that's humbling. So when we think that we are the smartest, when we think that we know the most, when we think that we like, have it all figured out, when, when we find ourselves masters of anything, then we set ourselves up to be the biggest fool in the room. I think that most of us can relate to, to the girl who can do calculus in her head, but she doesn't get the, the punchline of, of jokes. Or... 
or we know the guy who knows all the pop culture references for the last five decades, and he always beats you at, at any type of trivia, but he literally can't spell pop culture. Or, or the, the guy who can tell you what kind of car is coming a mile away by the sound of its exhaust, but he couldn't tell you the first thing about what club to use on the golf course from 40 yards out. Right, and that's just a, a, a splattering. What does any of that mean? It, it means that, that we all have brains that are inclined and, and passionate about particulars of creation. But no one is a master of, of everything. And the reality is no one is really a master of anything. There are know-it-alls. And, and none of those are in this room. There is one, it is, it is Father, Son, Spirit, one God in three persons. He is the only one. So, so among us, there are no know-it-alls, and this is humbling. And, and if we can actually believe that for a second, it is so liberating. It is liberating to know that I can't and I don't know everything. So, so that little girl in class jumping out of her seat to be noticed, she's fueled by the same false reality that compels the little boy who sits in the same class with his hoodie on, who doesn't make eye contact with the teacher, because unlike her, he doesn't know the answer. In fact, he might not even understand the question. So, so brother or sister in this room, you are not what you know. You are not what you don't know. God looks at no one and is amazed and impressed by their IQ. God never gasps and says, gosh, how did, how did they know that? He doesn't do that. He never has done that. You, you're never going to stand before God and say, man, look at all of the things that I know, let alone all of the things that I can do. God is, is amazed by no one. God never sought out an encyclopedia, uh, encyclopedia Britannica. He never flipped through the pages. He never went to the local library. He never asked Jeeves anything. And he certainly doesn't ask Google. He knows everything. God is not like us. God isn't impressed by what you know, and he isn't despaired by what you don't. And, and we shouldn't be either. What a sweet equalizer. As, as we've been saying for each of these attributes, what a sweet equalizer he has made each uniquely discovering and reflecting slivers of his infinite knowledge. And if you just thought for one second about that reality that what I get to do is to know what I know and to let it reflect and, and as I discover, I get to point others to know the glory of this, this, this infinitely knowledgeable God that, that I am not. And, and when we use that knowledge to point to his greatness rather than our own, we can love ourselves in a fresh way and we can love others in a way that's fueled by humble compassion that we are freed to ask questions. And, and we are freed to, to say the most difficult three words in the English language. I don't know. I see it in, in kids, I see it in adults, I see it in other pastors. Hey, I have a question. 
uh, I'm going to make up an answer. Don't. You, you are freed in whatever context. If your boss is, is looking and, and, and you think, oh, I have to, I'm going to make something up, you don't have to do that. If you're a teacher and, and the, 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 seventh, the seven-year-old asks you a question, you, you just say, well, you need to figure out how to find stuff like that on your own. And the kids are like, wait, mom just told me that. We, we are freed to say those words, I, I don't know. We are freed to ask a question. Hey, can you show me how to do that? Why is that so hard? But for most people that I know, those words are really tough. I'm saying those words and they're making me feel uncomfortable. Can you show me how to do that? I remember being a kid and, and trying to do something with my dad and you know, fix a car or whatever. And then he's, eh, eh, and I'm like, eh, eh. Just, just afraid for no reason to say, hey, can you just show me how to do that? I'm, I'm not sure how to do that. So it's a gift to have limited knowledge, and it places us rightly where we are, human, made by an infinite creator. But, but we, we let our own slivers of knowledge puff up. And we even let the knowledge of the omniscient God puff us up. I got a, So I have a friend, he's a pastor of a church that is uh, quite different than this one. We, um, we come from a, a theological camp, we in this room, right? And I won't speak for you, but I will speak on behalf of the village church. How about that? I think I can do that. Um, and so, so we are theologically reformed, which means we subscribe to the doctrines of grace, right? That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, period. In Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for God's glory alone, to God be the glory. And may we find our joy in those, those things. But, but this other church is, is not there, right? Where we lean on the doctrines of grace and, and God breathing life to dead men and women. That, to him, that, that we cannot, as the Bible teaches, find him but he finds us. And so even when we say things, when we tell our story, it's never, well, I found God one time while I was walking or had a conversation. It's no, God gripped me and he made me aware of my sinfulness and, and my impending death apart from him. That's God's work in salvation. Well, they lean on the other side of things that, that, that has a little bit more of a, a higher um, emphasis on the free will of man as the foundation to save. As if dead men can save themselves. So, we have a pretty good relationship. We, we talk regularly, and, and I've even preached at his church once, right? And, and I didn't tango with this stuff, right? I'm not that. time we've had conversations, so he called me a couple weeks ago, and, he, and we were talking about some other stuff, and, and he was like, hey, man, you know, you said something to me that, like, really offended me. And I was like, really? Like, I know I'm dumb sometimes, but, like, I, gosh, I'm, I'm struggling to know, like, what it was. And I'm, like, driving, and my heart's, like, pounding, like, dude, what did I, what did I say? And he's, like, well, you know, and, and so I'm, like, racking my brain so much that I even pulled over, and I'm, like, hold on. Like, dude, I am so sorry. Like, what did I do? And he was, like, well, one time, you, you know, we were uh, having conversation, and he said, you said something to me about, like, getting my theology right. And I was like, dude, I, I am so sorry. Like, 
I said, I'm struggling, right? I'm like, my mind's, this is like, when did, like, I don't remember this. Like, we see each other at ball fields and stuff. I'm like, I would, I said, the only reason I would have said that is because, one, I was like completely joking, or two, like, in a context that we were both tracking, like, I just can't, and he was like, yeah, it was about 10 years ago, and I was like, oh my God, well, of course I said that 10 years ago absolutely, like, no, everything in that moment added up, and he was like, it was a, a theology on tap thing, and you were reading this Driscoll book, and I was like, yes, of course I told you that, and I probably meant it in the moment. <laughs> There's something about us that we, we, we call this cage stage, right, stumbling upon the, the, the realities that this book is not about us, and when we find that, we're like, oh, no, no, you don't know, yeah, you know, God, well, what do you mean, God? And the gospel, you don't mean the gospel like we mean the, right? It, it, there's a word for it, it's, it's prideful arrogance. And you can do that stuff in love, and you can walk alongside a brother or a sister, and, and you can sort through this book together, but all that added up but in that uh that phone call man we had a great dude I'm so sorry bro whatever like that's terrible and and to be honest those of us in in this uh, the reformed community are really good at being arrogant and and online they're terrible humans out there hating people to preserve a doctrine that is built on God's unmerited love grace and mercy it should make us loving and kind truth-tellers. So he called me a week later, and he said, Hey, man, I'm, I'm working through this text, and it's dealing with faith and works. And I know you, you, know, you guys care about this. I, I just want to make sure that I get this right. He's preaching it as church. And I was like, wow. I mean, this is like a Saturday night. He's driving. I open up the Bible, and, and we talk about it together, and and, and by God's grace, the next morning, he, he sent me just a couple snapshots of his sermon, stuff that we had talked about. And, and he, he, he quoted Martin Luther in a sermon on faith and works in his church, right? But that, that's not the point. The, the point is what, what a gift the humility of limited knowledge is. And what it does is it places me rightly as a human uh, being created by, by the only one who knows everything and it allows me to learn from and come alongside others so God might be known. To know the God of all knowledge lets us use what we know to make him known, not to make ourselves known. The last thing is this, the pursuit of knowledge is a worthwhile ambition. See, the search for knowledge is no new thing. In the search for humans to find their identity or to build their civilization or whatever it is, or, or their, own, their own personal identity on knowledge is, is no new thing. It, it ebbs and flows throughout time and throughout history. There was a period called the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment is a uh, a, a European intellectual movement of the 17th and 18th centuries in which things like nature and humanity, all of those things were, were under uh, opposition and they were being reformed. So, so central to the, this kind of movement that we look back on and call the Enlightenment, central thought to this were, were the ideas uh, and the use of, of reason, the power by which humans understand the universe and, and how we improve our own condition. And some call this the age of science. 
And science is just discovery, right? So the word science shouldn't make anyone feel uncomfortable. It's just asking questions and, and finding wherever those, those answers lead, right? So the irony is that the way humanity sought to find those things, knowledge, freedom, and happiness, those were the goals of the Enlightenment. Knowledge, freedom, and happiness. And by the way, I'm, I'm all about all those things. I love these things, knowledge, and, and I love freedom, and I love to be happy. Who doesn't love that, all right? And so, again, nothing in it, right? But, but the irony was that the way they sought to find those things was to forsake the God of infinite knowledge. How silly we must appear. Dust defining knowledge to the God of all knowledge. How, how silly we must appear. Academics and, and atheists have sought to disprove God through their own knowledge. And, and academics and atheists like, like C.S. Lewis, who uh, served the church for many years, and, and, and others, they, they stumbled upon the depth of knowledge so deep that, that they, in fact, find God. So in the pursuit to oppose God, they in fact find God. Lewis joined the Apostle Paul, who, if you remember, he was killing Christians, and he was on, his, on, on the, the road to Damascus, and, and he was rounding people up, all who claimed the name of Jesus, and he was confronted by God himself. And Jesus showed up, and, and he blinded Paul. And he says, why are you treating me like this, Paul? It's C.S. Lewis, a, a similar story, right? Lewis and, and, and the Apostle Paul in, in, in confusion as they seek to undermine God by reason. They, they, they understand that, that the knowledge that they were stumbling upon took, took root in them so much that they could not reason their way out of faith in the one that they sought to oppose. C.S. Lewis says it this way. You must picture me alone in that room at Magdalene, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me in the third term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. I wonder sometimes if there are people among us who have, who have strived in every work of their hand to have a relationship with this God of all knowledge and you've never humbled yourself to this point as C.S. Lewis says, I, I, I opposed him and finally I gave in and I admitted that God was God and I knelt and I prayed. Now look, and, and if you've never done that, and let, let today be that day in just a few minutes. Let today be that day when you just acknowledge there is a God and he is not me, that I am broken and, and he is perfect. 
he went on and he said, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England, C.S. Lewis. So here's the thing, though. You don't have to be C.S. Lewis or the Apostle Paul. You don't have to be an intellect. You don't have to study at Cambridge or, or any other university to know the most fundamental human knowledge. That God is God and that we are not. And that Christ came and he lived perfect before the Father in every way. The only human not to give way to sin's temptation. And he died on a cross absorbing the wrath of God as a sinner that he was not. And he did that for my sin and he did that for your sin and all of those who would call upon his name for the forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Jesus took that sin upon himself and he died. He died so that death might have its way because death is the penalty for sin. But he didn't stay that way. He rose three days later. And, and, and today he reigns to save broken sinners, flawed in our pursuit of knowledge, flawed in our intellect, flawed in our identities. And when we start there, our lives change. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 2. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. We've all been that person, and certainly we all know that person. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand because they are spiritually discerned. Self to be judged by no one. Verse 16, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. But, but we have the mind of Christ. That, that by grace alone, through faith alone, our lives are united by the power of the Spirit that takes up residence in us and unites us with the life and the mind of Jesus. And this helps us live in a way that's honoring and pleasing in every way. And it helps us inherit our inheritance that is sured for us by what has already been done through the life of Jesus. So as we pursue knowledge, we get to do, we get to do a couple things. The first thing is this. We get to pursue knowledge, right? We get to pursue knowledge. It is our understanding of the universe that points us to the never-ending, incomprehensible God who alone knows all. So for you, you get to pursue your passions, you get to pursue your, your curiosities. And I tell people this all the time. Man, I, I have a struggle because I know that God is like this and, and life is like this and, and, or, or information is like this and God is like, But people, and what we get to do is we get to submit to this as truth and we get to, at the same time, pursue and know that God can handle your doubt. God is not afraid of your curiosity. We get to pursue knowledge. And as the Spirit awakens us, we get to see that knowledge as ordained and established. The thing is, we get to pursue Christ. Peter tells us in, in 2 Peter, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, 
take care that you are not can lose your own stability. So in the same way that we have all freedom to pursue passion and knowledge and curiosity, Peter says, check yourself and make sure that your highest authority is, is the word of God. And he says, as you do, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. One said, deep theology is the best fuel of devotion. It readily catches fire and once kindled, it burns long. All this, you can tell someone to walk in the ways of Jesus. You can tell a child to do that. You can tell yourself to do that. But unless he has pricked our hearts in a way that, that stirs our affections and our ambitions and our pursuits of knowledge, we're, we're going to struggle to walk that life out. But when we do, when we do begin to know and understand the fullness or as much as our brains can handle of the full nature of this God who, who loves us so much that he laid his life down for us, we get to let our highest ambition be to know Christ and let all uh, effort otherwise be to help stir our affections for Christ. And when his love has gripped our hearts, we won't cease to know him And the more we know him, the more we fall in love with the love that he has for us. To know the God of all knowledge allows us to use what we know to make him known. Man, we get to respond today. We get to pray and you get to sit right where you are. You can stand up and sing with the band. Y'all can come on up. There will be some people over by that red tree that would love to pray with you. There will be a prayer bench over there. You're more than welcome to go over. And we would love for you, if you are in Christ, right, whether you're a part of this church or not, if you're part of God's family, then we invite you to take communion. And what this is, it's an opportunity to remember for your own self Christ's blood and body that was broken by taking of the cup and of the wafer. But we don't only get to remember that, but we get to declare that to one another. We didn't do this for, for six months as a church or, or five months or however long it was, and so... We are encouraged by one another as we remember and as we declare Christ's body broken, Christ's blood spilled. Would you pray with me? God, thank you that you know it all and that we don't. God, would you shape us who find our identity in what we know or what we don't? Would you let our pursuits be to find you, not just in the end, but all along the way? Would you let us go hard after passions and, and, and knowledge that stirs our hearts and affections for you? And would you let us lay aside the knowledge and the passions that draw us away from you or that don't stir our hearts and affections towards you? God, you are good, you are kind, and we need you today in Jesus' name.